The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So the low-hanging fruit are the 10, you know, who have been cleared and are still there. There are another 17 who are in detention, not in the military commissions, who have not been cleared by PRBs. And, you know, I think those are the most complicated cases for the administration politically. That will be the, the last nut to crack in the universe that is Guantanamo. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 23rd, 2021. It's been a busy couple weeks at Guantanamo Bay, a place that has not had a busy couple weeks in a while. There was a transfer. There was a resumption of military commissions. The chief prosecutor of the military commissions resigned abruptly. We thought we would get a group together to go over the late events. Steve Vladek is a Lawfare contributing editor and a professor at the University of Texas. Latif Nasser is a co-host of the show Radio Lab from New York Public Radio, where he did an extended series about a Guantanamo Bay detainee who just happens to be the one who was transferred this week. We talked about who the transferee was and why he was held so long. We talked about the resumption of military commissions and why they are, even when resumed, stagnated. We talked about the resignation of General Martins, and we talked about the D.C. Circuit's latest forays into Guantanamo Bay. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 23rd, a Guantanamo update with Latif Nasser and Steve Vladek. So, Steve, get us started. It's been a a big few weeks for Guantanamo news, uh, which usually doesn't take place in big clusters. Give us an overview of how the the world, the small world of Guantanamo Bay is different this week than it was, say, three weeks ago. Well, I mean, I think the, the the first thing is that there are you know things happening in the military commissions. I mean, we've we're on the far side of what was a you know sixteen seventeen month pause in every single pretrial proceeding in all four of the pending military commission cases, and you know we had the first proceedings in, in at least two of those cases in the last couple of days in the last week or so. So that's I think a big shift. There's one fewer detainee at Guantanamo than there was a couple of weeks ago. So we've had the first 
you know, transfer of a detainee out of the administration, at least a, a transfer that wasn't pursuant to a plea agreement since President Obama's last full day in office in 2017. And we no longer have, you know, General Mark Martins as the chief prosecutor of the military commissions, even though at various points, General Martins had told various folks that he was going to, you know, see the 9-11 trial all the way to its conclusion that ended up not happening. Um, and apparently it didn't happen because of a disagreement over some litigation strategy. So, you know, these are, at least in Guantanamo land, pretty big deals. And then the the fourth piece of news is sort of less of a pretty big deal because it was sort of a punt. But the, the Biden administration filed its brief under seal in probably the most important Guantanamo case the D.C. Circuit has heard in a while about whether the due process clause applies to the Guantanamo detainees. And apparently, according to reporting from, you know, Carol from Charlie Savage, the administration took no position on that question. So, you know, I would say, Ben, four to five pretty big news items that I think matter a lot on their own, but together also, I think, are a pretty interesting inflection point. All right. So we're going to go through each of those in turn, but I want to start with the transfer the Trump administration had not transferred people, at least not pursuant to plea agreement. And the, the gentleman transferred was uh, named Latif Nasser. And we happen to have Latif Nasser, albeit a different one, right here. <laughs> Latif, tell us about the gentleman who was transferred from Guantanamo this week and uh, how you came to be interested in him. Yeah. Well, I, I guess maybe I'll answer the second question first. And in a way, in your introduction, you already answered it, which is that, that I found too much to my sort of befuddlement a few years back when I was just sort of procrastinating on Twitter, that there was this guy at Guantanamo who had my same name. Yeah, I, I just uh, like I, I didn't realize that such a person exists. And then as soon as I did, I immediately wanted to know everything I could about him. So kind of to your to the first part of your question, Basically, the, the, what I could find out then, there was there was pretty little about him out there. The first kind of place where I found anything was on the uh, Guantanamo docket on the New York Times website. And basically what I found about him there through those uh, like leaked DOD, you know, dossiers, it sounded very nefarious. I mean, he basically the, ch the charges, they weren't actually formal charges, but basically what they said were uh, he was a top explosives expert of Al Qaeda. He was a top advisor to Osama bin Laden. He helped blow up the um, Bamiyan Buddha statues, which were a UNESCO World Heritage Site. He fought U.S. and coalition forces at uh, the Battle of Tora Bora. And then wound up at Guantanamo, where he had all kinds of disciplinary infractions and everything like that. That's sort of what it said. And I, I you know, had this very stark picture of this guy. And then when I talked to his attorney, a woman by the name of Shelby Sullivan Bennis, who was then at the law firm Reprieve, she basically said the exact opposite. She said, no, 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 this guy was an aid worker at the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, he he was never in Al Qaeda. Didn't uh, have any kind of relationship with um, Osama bin Laden, and uh, so on and so on. And basically, this guy, you know, the U.S. paid a ransom for this guy, and they got a guy who, you know, uh, who was just mixed up in something he had nothing to do with, and never had charges, and never had a trial. 
And then to kind of to make matters more intense, what, at the time when I discovered it around uh, 20, end of 2016, early uh, 2017, he had gone before this PRB hearing this parole like process uh, board uh, made up of, you know, people from the heads of, you know, six top agencies of the U.S. government. And they unanimously declared that he was that they didn't need to be holding him any longer. He was not a continuing threat. So he was this guy that was sort of like cleared on paper, but remained at Guantanamo. And that's sort of when I found him and when I started doing uh, research into his story. And as you reported in your excellent Radio Lab series about him, he kind of got hung up in this end of the Obama administration period where he was uh, notionally under under certain circumstances cleared to be transferred. And yet it kind of didn't just didn't happen before Trump took office. What do we know, uh, Latif, about the circumstances of his actual transfer? Was it just that the Biden administration picked up where the Obama administration left off and when it left office? And now that they had the chance, they effectuated the transfer order? Or is there more to the story than that? That, that's basically the story. There's maybe a little more to the story. Like, it does feel like, in general, the story is the his transfer was kind of this uncashed check from the Obama administration that the Biden administration just finally, you know, endorsed or whatever. But basically, there were a few other things, which is that kind of if you were looking, I think I think sort of from a, a political strategy perspective, uh, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Uh, Guantanamo still being there is kind of a reminder of what went wrong, I think, to a lot of people. And in a way to get people out of there would look like uh, uh, make Guantanamo smaller or to get rid of it uh, uh, or close it down would be a win for this administration. That said, they, you know, it's it's really hard getting guys out of there. Abdul Latif, first of all, as you said, he had that sort of transfer package. It was completely done. It was just kind of paperwork that got snarled uh, at the end, like, a, you know, the Secretary of Defense's signature on a piece of paper, essentially. And, and so that's what was holding him up. But like, if you look at sort of his case, like he's going back to Morocco, a country that is a stable country, an ally of the United States. He has a family there waiting for him, a job there waiting for him, a, a house there waiting for him. Like he, he was, I think on paper, he was the easiest case to transfer. One of the folks I talked to who was involved in putting that transfer together said that his case was not a low-hanging fruit. His case was a no-hanging fruit. Um, it was like, it was just right there. It was the, it was the layup that the you know, Biden administration could just kind of put in the bucket. So, Steve, how should we understand this transfer? There are 40-ish people remaining at Guantanamo. How many of them are plausible transfers at this point, and how many of them fall into this category of really, really difficult to imagine what a disposition that doesn't involve continued detention looks like. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are, I often like to think that there are four categories, Ben, of Guantanamo detainees. And, you know, for folks who haven't seen it, the New York Times has a fantastic thing called the Guantanamo docket, which really is a super helpful breakdown of, of all of this, including the four categories. So with the transfer of Mr. Latif, there are 10 detainees who are of the remaining 39 who have already been cleared by the periodic review boards who, you know, meet the other sort of internal 
criteria for transfer. And so the question is just if the Biden administration um, is going to be able to find somewhere to send them. Of those 10, it's worth stressing a bunch of them are Yemeni, um, and that has continued to pose difficulties on the resettlement question. And just to be clear, that's because you can't easily repatriate somebody to Yemen because of the state of that country. So you have to find some third country willing to take the person. That's right. And at least one of the 10 is stateless, which raises complications of its own. So those 10, I think it's right to sort of think about this as the way Latif put it as as no hanging fruit. So the low hanging fruit are the 10, you know, who have been cleared and are still there. There are another 17 who are in detention, not in the military commissions, who have not been cleared by PRBs. And, you know, I think those are the most complicated cases for the administration politically. That will be the the last nut to crack in the universe that is Guantanamo. There are two of the remaining 39 who are serving sentences pursuant to military commission convictions. And then there are 10 who are in various stages of pretrial proceedings in the military commissions. And that's it. And so, you know, 27 of the 39 are on the detention side, 12 of the 39 on the military commission side. And, you know, the 12 on the military commission side have their own problems. But I think from the from the perspective of an administration that has not repudiated the commissions, you know, I think it's safe to assume those are going to soldier ahead at whatever terrifyingly slow pace they're soldiering. Um, <laughs> the the you know the real political challenge for the Biden administration, the the diplomatic challenge is the ten who have already been cleared. The political challenge is the other seventeen. All right. Before we turn to the other major issues that arose, which coincidentally involve those other groups of people. Let's finish up with with the transfer uh, situation. Latif, have you been in touch with uh, Latif Nasser's family or with him? I, you were sort of famously not uh, able to have direct contact with him while you were reporting your story. I'm actually surprised you're not in Morocco hanging out with him now. <laughs> It's uh, yeah, I was I was very tempted, let me tell you. Uh, But basically in reporting, I did a number of interviews with former Guantanamo detainees, and those were the hardest interviews I've ever done in my entire career, in part because these men have been through a lot and they are very. I mean, they have all kinds of sort of PTSD and they have all kinds of uh, hesitations and unwillingness, which you can sort of imagine, to sit and subject themselves to more questions. And so to me, like that was actually very much my first impulse, like here he's get, he gets transferred, just jump on a plane. But then I realized that actually probably more productive, what would lead to a better interview and a more kind of humane way to approach it is to sort of give him a little time, let him settle with his family, uh, give him a little space. I didn't want to be, you know, the paparazzo going in through Britney Spears's bathroom window or whatever, and just give him a little space and then, and then kind of pursue it after that. And I think that, uh, yeah, I, I, I have been sort of in touch with him through his lawyer and, and as well with the family, um, again, through the lawyer. And yeah, they are they are ecstatic. They're so excited. Um, they are, and especially because it, it sort of coincidentally, I think, happened to be Eid when when he sort of the day before he lands there. So he's celebrating his first you know holiday with his family in 19 years. So they are they are uh, very excited. They are very 
but they're also a little bit, I mean, it's kind of a tender transitional time for them. Yeah. So I, I think it's kind of, we'll, we'll see how it shakes out and, and hopefully I'll, I'll be able to, um, yeah, to get that, you know, interview that I've been waiting for, for like five years now. So Steve, let's talk about General Mark Martins, who was the chief prosecutor of the military commissions. And as you described, contended for a number of years that uh, he would be there through the 9-11 trial. Mark Martins has now announced his retirement. The 9-11 trial still hasn't happened. What happened? Well, you know, we only know what's been publicly reported, Ben. And and so I, I think it's important to put that caveat up front. But there are coincidences that seem to give a lot of credence to the public reporting. So Carol Rosenberg, and at least on one of the stories, I think Charlie Savage reported that Martins stepped away as the result of a fight with others in the Biden administration, albeit unnamed others, about the position the government was going to take on an interlocutory appeal in the Al-Nashiri case. Al-Nashiri, folks may remember, is the alleged and accused mastermind of the October 2000 bombing of the USS Cole. Um, it's Al-Nashiri's case where the DC Circuit in 2019 wiped away three and a half years of pretrial proceedings because of a conflict that the trial judge had and didn't disclose. Here now, Ben, what, we're, what everyone's fighting about is an effort by the government, led at the time by General Martins, to introduce statements that Al-Nashiri made while he was in CIA custody and by every account except the government's being tortured not at his trial, but at least in support of certain pre-trial proceedings in the military commission. And that fight produced a ruling by the trial judge, Judge Acosta, gosh, I think it was late last year, it might have been early this year, adopting what to my mind was a rather implausible reading of the Military Commissions Act, under which those statements could be admitted for pre-trial proceedings because pre-trial proceedings were not quote, proceedings in a military commission, unquote, that the that was just a reference to the trial. Whoever has the better of that argument, Al-Nashiri has appealed that to the Court of Military Commission Review. And General Martin's- Your step, favorite court. My favorite court, the, the <laughs> court that has, has done the most- the most to give Article One courts a bad name of any court I can think of. So the that appeal is pending. And the timing of Martin's departure was the day the government's response was due. And on that date, not only did you know the Times file the story about Martin stepping down, but the government filed something asking for an extension. And then the government has since filed a very careful, a, a sort of a tightrope walking brief where they are declining to defend Judge Acosta's decision, but they're not agreeing that it's wrong. <laughs> um, basically, where they want to sort of live to fight this, the, the, the Biden administration's not asking the CMCR to affirm, but they're also not willing to concede that Acosta was incorrect so that they can have this issue for a future case if they want it. That seems to be, Ben, what forced or pushed Martins out, whether it was his own doing or whether it was you know that he was asked to step down by the very few people above him in the chain of command, I think only a handful of people know, but it seems to be that the Biden administration insisted on Martin's not defending that ruling on appeal, and, and that was the last straw. So your, your inference here is that Martin's wanted to defend this decision and the Biden administration 
uh, did not, although having gotten rid of him, they didn't acknowledge error in the case either, right? Um, they did not acknowledge error. What they're basically saying is that they are not that they're not defending it, basically, that they're going to sort of, you know, stipulate. I, th I think that what they've done, Ben, is that they're going to stipulate to sort of a withdrawal of that opinion without conceding that it was error, that basically they're no longer going to seek to introduce that evidence against al-Nashiri, and therefore the legal issue is moot. Moot, not necessarily settled. And so, you know, I, I think the, the reason why, Ben, I feel somewhat comfortable in the inference, although it's right to say that it's an inference, is because... We only got to this point because the prosecutors under the direction of General Martins had pushed for this ruling in the first place. And so, you know, I, I find it hard to believe it was the other way around, right? I find it hard to believe that a legal argument advanced by General Martins and his prosecutors, you know, that pushed General Martins out because he was standing by the same argument, if you follow my, like, because he wasn't standing by the same argument. Like, I, it seems to me the most logical inference here is that he wanted the government to defend that decision. The you know people above him didn't, and that they just reached some kind of intractable you know in, in, impact. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent 
potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. So this brings us to the more general point about the proceedings continuing in the military commissions. <laughs> or albeit, not, as the case may be. Albeit without hmm. the chief prosecutor, unlike Latif Nasser, there are these detainees who have pending charges against them, including... Mr. Al-Nashiri and the five 11 accused conspirators. Where are we at this point? I mean, for, <laughs> for those, uh, I would say, overwhelming majority of listeners and lawfare readers who have frankly lost track of uh, the saga of the military commissions, what does it mean that proceedings resumed? And is the resumption of proceedings really mean the resumption of uh, stalling at a different rate? I would say stalling for different reasons, right? That, that as opposed <laughs> to being stalled by COVID, now we're back to where we were before, which is with different cases stalling because of various procedural impasses. So, you know, the, the reality is, yes, I mean, there are 10 defendants spread across four trials or at least four cases. There's You mentioned the 5911 defendants, Al-Nashiri, Hadi al-Iraqi, also known as Nashwan al-Tamir. And then there are the three, sort of the so-called Indonesia defendants, um, whose case is the least far along. I mean, who I think were just only a couple months ago arraigned. And there are also, to be clear, a couple who have pled, right? So Abulul was convicted and Majid Khan pled. So there right. are two there are two still at Guantanamo who are on the far side of the military commission's system and are just in in sort of post-conviction imprisonment, if you will. Ben, we could do like an hour on each of the cases and why they're stuck in the mud. To make a long story short, 
yes, the resumption of proceedings at Guantanamo means that we will go from zero movement toward trial in these cases toward the very slow paced movement toward trial that we had seen before last March. You know, I still think a 2024 trial date in the 9-11 case is still, to me, wildly optimistic. Probably the same for Alan Sherry, because the the wild card here, and, and the Mark Martin story is a good example of this. The wild card here is interlocutory appeals. And the specter that if the trial courts hand down, you know, rulings that really tilt very heavily one way or the other, there's going to be time spent taking that issue up to the CMCR and then, if necessary, the D.C. Circuit, perhaps without the trial being able to you know, continue, perhaps without further progress in the pretrial proceedings. And in the Nishiri case, when that happened, indeed, they went backwards three and a half years. So there are so many things still to be worked out. There are so many questions still to be answered. And frankly, I, mean, I mentioned, you know, Ben, the ongoing fight in the Alhila case about whether the due process clause applies at all to the detainees, that's on the habeas side. Hey, wait, man, we're getting to that. I, don't, but, but don't jump I, the gun. I'm not jumping the gun. I'm just tying threads together, which is to say that like what the DC Circuit does in that case could yet further either slow down or throw a wrench into the, you know, the the incredibly slow march of pretrial proceedings in each of these four cases. I have a quick question, actually, if I could butt in. Steve, this is like, uh, I, f- I feel like uh, I'm one of those people that Ben was saying before is like sort of sort of lost the thread. So actually hearing you lay it all out like this is very, very helpful. But the fact that this is like, this has been dragging on for <laughs> yeah. so long. My, my, my question is like, is there anybody, anybody on any side of this who is happy with the way things are going right now? Not publicly. So, I mean, you know, I had thought this is why I think the Mark, I mean, to go back to the Mark Martin story for a second, I mean, you know, say what you will about General Martins, and he and I have certainly had our differences over the years. But man, if you needed someone to stand up and say, you know, this is going okay, we just have to keep, you know, the only way out is through, like, yes, you know, keep calm and carry on. Like, that was his shtick was, you know, yeah, we're, yeah. you know, we're reinventing the wheel. <laughs> this is going to take a while. There are going to be some bumps and bruises, but we're marching in the right direction. And so, you know, to me at least, right, General Martin's sort of stepping off stage is just yet another nail in this coffin of like, what are we still doing here? I mean, you know, Ben, no, I mean, I wrote a piece for for Lawfare. I, I just went back and looked at when I wrote it. It was April of 2019 titled, It's Time to Admit That the Military Commissions Have Failed. You know, here we are two years and three months later, and they haven't gotten any better. And you know, I mean, if you want a symbol, General Martin's leaving is quite a symbol and it's not a good one. So there may be people out there who still think everything's going great with the military commissions. I'm hard pressed to think of anyone who says that publicly. I don't think there's anybody. I mean, as somebody who defended the military commissions for quite a while, I haven't done so publicly in years. It seems to me they they have a demonstrated record of failure across all of the axes that justified their existence in the first place. And I don't know anybody who argues to the contrary. Not anymore. I mean, I, I think I think the, the, the most ardent defenders of the military commissions have shifted to why 
if they were properly designed, they'd be okay, right? Basically have, have shifted back to arguments about why they're legally permissible. I, I think everyone accepts even begrudgingly that the current circumstances is, is, is problematic, but, you know, right, but, but, I, but, but, yeah. but legally permissible is a very different question than functioning well. Uh, of course the, it is. And, the, and, and, the, and I, those I, yeah. of us, those of us who, you know, believed in the idea of military commissions did so because the, the argument was, and we were wrong, uh, that they were both legally permissible and provided certain advantages over federal, you know, regular old federal courts for certain categories of uh, counterterrorism cases. That second half, leave aside whether the first half was right, that second half of the argument was simply wrong. And nothing that's happened over the past 20 years provides an an iota of support for it. And I, I don't know anybody serious who doesn't accept that at this point. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd be curious what General Martins thinks. Um, and I, I mean, he's serious. Um, but, but I'll just say, I mean, Ben, it, it's worth taking a minute to talk about why, right? I mean, like, you know, yes, we can all accept that the commissions have failed, or at least that they're at a point where they are, where they are in, mired in the mud as a policy matter. I, I, I think it would be, I'd be derelict if I didn't say at least a little bit about why I think that's true. And I think some of that is just bad institutional design. You already alluded to my love for the Court of Military Commission Review, a court that so far as I can tell serves exactly a zero purpose except to slow things down. But, you know, I, I just I, I know I'm beating a dead horse here, but also look at Nashiri. I mean, the latest, you know, brouhaha is we're back to the original sin, which is torture. That, you know, if the government were and I've said this as, as so often on on the National Security Law podcast, I can't even remember how often I've said it. Like if the government were willing to take the death penalty off the table in the 9-11 case, take the death penalty off the table in the Shiri and stop trying to rely on evidence obtained from the CIA, this would all go a lot faster. And, you know, I, I, there's there's a tendency on the part of the government's lawyers and some of the military commission judges to blame defense lawyers for, you know, litigating every issue, for raising every objection. With all respect, that is their job, right? If the government wanted this to be a success, the government and not the defense lawyers have has the means of doing so. It's just it just would require the government to make choices that to this point it has been unwilling to make. Well, and and I, I would say more fundamentally even than that, if you replayed this tape in federal court, defense lawyers would do exactly the same thing. They would yep. raise every issue, they would make every possible <laughs> objection, and it yep. would not take twenty years to litigate the thing. Because because <laughs> because because federal judges are better are better at this, and they are more competent at this, and they would not be doing everything as a matter of first impression. So. Latif, I'm curious for your, you've been ambiently aware of the military commission side of Guantanamo, Mm -hmm. but your guy was never in it. How does it seem to you? Does it just seem like this kind of crazy sideshow that it, that affects ultimately a small number of the, of the detainees? Well, a relatively large number of the remaining detainees, but like right. how do you know from the point of view who followed really closely somebody who was not in this system what does right. the system look right. like to you well in a way 
Yeah, I, it's, it's sort of a. I feel like they're just different flavors of dysfunctional here. The way that Abdul Latif Nasser kind of was ushered through this periodic review board system, I think it, it definitely sounds better than the system all these other uh, detainees are going through, this military commission system. But it also had its own kind of challenges and, and issues and problems. But I think it was like those were like sort of surmountable and handle, handleable problems. But, but but it is, to me, I think it was a thing that Steve was saying earlier. Like, it's like, this is this is reinventing the wheel. It seems so arduous. It seems like a, uh, and, and, and that would be, if again, as Steve said, like if if torture wasn't even involved, this would be a very arduous process. And then to add something that is, um, I'm not a lawyer, but I this phrase uh, I remember the uh, what is it, the fruit of the poison tree or uh, like like to me there, there's it's like you're trying to do two immensely hard things at once. It's like the thing I the image I have of the. Have you guys ever seen those YouTube videos of the the cars that are on two wheels and they're trying to change the tires <laughs> yeah, of the other yeah. two wheels? Like it's that kind of a thing. Like it's like why would you do both of these things at the same time? It already seems so difficult and this already seems so kind of legally precarious, politically dicey. Like there's like it's just it's it's it just seems like this impossible corner that the government has painted itself into. I think that's largely right. And, and can I, say, I mean, the other thing to say here is, and this is why I've been, I mean, I've been trying to look for signals from the Biden administration that we're in for anything other than the end of the Obama administration. And to be perfectly honest, so far, I haven't seen much, you know, I mean, transferring, you know, transferring Abdul Latif Nasser is, as, as we've said, like, you know, that was just cleaning up a mess that should have been cleaned up in 2017. You know, I, I haven't seen the Biden administration expend any capital on any of the proposals that are out there to actually make meaningful progress on the military commission side. For example, you know, trying to actually see if any of the defendants will agree to plead guilty by video conference in civilian court, which is something that, you know, had been floated a lot during the Obama administration, even for an early period in the Trump administration, no political capital in trying to push the Democratic-controlled Congress to finally get rid of the domestic transfer restrictions that have been in the you know National Defense Authorization Act every year since, what, 2011? So, you know, we're stuck here, and it's not the Biden administration's fault that we're stuck, but we're not going to get unstuck without someone doing something and that someone's not going to be the detainees and it's not going to be the detainees lawyers. Okay. I want to push back on you on this because I think if you're a, say a law professor at the university of Texas, you get to say this, but if you were in the white house <laughs> counsel's office or the defense department general counsel's office, and you had to look out for the interests of your client, and your client was the Biden administration, it would be very hard to say, oh, let's urge the administration to expend its limited political capital in a 50-50 uh, Senate to allow the transfer to the United States of detainees who let's say, unlike Abdul Latif Nasser, unquestionably did really, really horrible things. And some of them, let's remember who a few of them are, Mr. Al-Qahtani, right, who 
is not charged in a military commission right now. His case was dismissed for torture reasons, but he's the guy who was trying to meet Mohammed Atta in Miami airport and was turned away by an elite, particularly alert border guard. 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Like, would you as a lawyer for the presidency in one form or another really urge the transfer of you know, Mohammed Al-Qahtani. So I, I think I think either you're missing my point or I wasn't clear. And, and my money's on the latter. Maybe both. So my point is not that they ought to do this at the expense of every other item on their domestic agenda, because it's not hard to imagine how every single Republican will react. My point is that it is not, we're not going to get anywhere unless they do. And so, yeah, I mean, Ben, do I understand why closing Guantanamo is not something on which this administration is expending any capital? Of course I do. If I were in the administration, would I feel the same way? Quite possibly. That doesn't change the fact that they're the only ones in a position to do anything about it. And, you know, that's that's why we're stuck now, as opposed to why we've been stuck previously. I, I do think there are things they can do short of, you know, using their razor thin Democratic majorities on Guantanamo. I don't think, for example, the video plea deal proposal requires any legislation at all. And so insofar as that was something they were willing to do, you know, as long as there were defendants who were willing to acquiesce, I think that could be pursued. I think they could really ramp up the efforts to not just get all 10 of the PRB clear detainees out of Guantanamo, but to actually see if any of the 17 not PRB clear detainees might now actually get through the PRB process because that has happened before. So I, I want to be as clear as possible. It is not that I blame the Biden administration for where we are today. I do not. It's that so much of the sort of reasons why we're going to continue to be stuck are because of the political factors that will lead the administration to not expend capital on the things it would need to do to actually make a meaningful dent in that number. Okay, and this brings us very neatly to Alhila, the DC Circuit case to which you referred earlier, which involves, has actually potentially substantial implications for a lot of people, but I think particularly for the remaining detainees who were in Abdul Latif Nasser's position, that is, people who were PRB cleared for transfer, but got kind of stuck. So uh, walk us through where where we are with that. Oh, okay. So Al-Hila is one of a couple of the 17 detainees who have not been cleared by PRBs, whose habeas petitions took a really, really, really long time. These are not like second and successive. These are first petitions. And Al-Hila, along with Saifullah Paracha, and there's, I think, one other it's not Saifola, there are two Parachas. It's, this is, it's even hard for me to keep track of all these things. Anyway, so Alhila's case finally got to the D.C. Circuit last year, and it produced this remarkably 2009-like opinion because it produced this remarkably 2009-like panel where you had a three-judge panel of judges Naomi Rao, A. Raymond Randolph, and former judge Griffith. And for folks who sort of 
don't have the DC Circuit's Guantanamo jurisprudence committed to memory, Judge Randolph is the one who wrote the opinion that was reversed by the Supreme Court in Rizul. He's the one who wrote the opinion that was reversed by the Supreme Court in Hamdan. He's the one who wrote the opinion that was reversed by the Supreme Court in Boumediene. And he was the one who wrote the opinion that was vacated by the Supreme Court in Kiemba. So he has some views on Guantanamo. So the three-judge panel held a couple of pretty important things, but most importantly, it held that Guantanamo detainees categorically do not have due process rights. Judge Griffith's separate concurring opinion suggested it was unnecessary to reach that conclusion because as various other panels had done at various other points, one could assume the due process clause applied if one believed that whatever process the detainees had received met due process standards. And then the, you know, the, the, the detainee, Mr. Alhila, sought rehearing on Bonk um, from the D.C. Circuit given how sort of one-sided a panel he had, he had received. The D.C. Circuit agreed to rehear the case on Bonk, but, and here's what I think especially important, only the due process issue. There were actually some other important questions that the panel decided about whether the scope of the government's detention authority includes the power to detain someone who was not a member of al-Qaeda or any of its affiliated groups, but who provided substantial support to al-Qaeda and its affiliates through non-belligerent activity. That's a big deal, too. That is not what's going before the en banc circuit. The en banc circuit is just deciding the due process question. So, of course, this led to the question of, well, what's the Biden administration going to say about the due process clause? And again, we're back to Carol and Charlie's reporting. And according to Carol and Charlie, there was a huge interagency kerfuffle about what the Biden administration's position ought to be, where all three positions were represented. Basically, the notion that the due process clause should apply to the detainees and yet was satisfied here. The notion that the court should not reach whether it applies because even if it does, it was satisfied. And the notion that the it was not applicable at all. All three positions were aired. Apparently the middle one won. And so the brief that we have not seen, as we've been told by Carol and Charlie, takes no position on the due process question. It merely takes the position that to whatever extent due process applies, the procedures at Guantanamo comport with due process. Exactly so. And that's an elegant compromise if you don't think about it that much. The reason why I'm I'm sort of wary of that compromise and the reason why I've been wary of opinions making that point going all the way back to, I think it was then Circuit Judge Brett Kavanaugh, who was the first to make that argument, is because various judges on the DC Circuit have suggested that some of the critical procedural rulings that the Court of Appeals reached in the first round of post-Bumedian cases, Ben, back in 09, 10, and 11, were informed by the assumption that the Due Process Clause did not apply. So, for example, the notion that the correct standard of, of the burden of proof is a preponderance of the evidence, not clear and convincing evidence. Well, Judge Silberman has all but said the reason why you know they're not troubled by Hamdi is because that case, of course, was about due process. So color me skeptical that the D.C. Circuit's jurisprudence over the last 11, 12 years would look the same if the due process clause clearly applied to the detainees. But the larger point, and I'm just going to say one more thing and now I'll shut up, is, you know, whatever this means for the habeas cases, it has enormous implications for the military commissions, because to whatever extent the government can get away with the argument that the procedures these defendants are, the detainees are receiving satisfies due process in the habeas context. You know, Ben, courts have a much better idea of what due process requires in the criminal context, especially in the capital context. And, you know, that's where I think Al Hila could have enormous practical ramifications 
on the military commission side, answering that question one way or the other. And do you have an instinct about how to handicap the en banc DC circuit uh, on this point? And let me just make the question a little harder. And do you have an instinct about if the en banc DC circuit agrees with you, what the chances are that the Supreme Court would regard the matter as cert worthy, where I have to say there certainly is not a majority in my view for, for the idea that due process applies at Guantanamo. So I think, I mean, I think it's really hard to handicap the en banc DC circuit because it's really hard to know where the judges who will end up in the middle um, will come down. I mean, the last time the DC circuit heard a Guantanamo case en banc was the second time they went en banc in the Al-Balul military commission case. And, you know, what folks may remember, if they remember anything about that, was that the sort of the two wings of the DC circuit were very strongly in opposition to each other, while judges Millett and Wilkins, you know, both wanted to rest on narrow case-specific grounds that deprived either wing of a majority. It's possible that that's where we're headed here, where, you know, there's one camp that firmly wants to say due process applies, there's one camp that firmly wants to say it doesn't, and there's a camp in the middle that's going to embrace the Biden administration's position. And, you know, that, I think, is going to accomplish absolutely nothing in settling the law. If instead we somehow get to a majority for due process applying, you know, assuming that they say due process applies, but it's satisfied, Ben, that puts the Biden administration in a very interesting position from the perspective of do they even ask the Supreme Court for cert at that point? Right. That if, if the D.C. Circuit holds, as opposed to assumes, that the due process clause applies to the Guantanamo detainees, but that it doesn't require more than what the, its jurisprudence has already articulated, wh- whether or not it's cert worthy, I'm not sure it's actually cert provoking. We will have to see on that point. Latif, I want to close with you. The guy who bears your name has gone home. What happens to him now? And and. Let's use it as a reflection on sort of 700 people have been removed from Guantanamo and sent elsewhere. What happens to them? Yeah, the sort of to to talk about his case first and then zoom out a little bit. For him, he is very lucky that he has a family to go to, a home to go to, a job to go to. There is a rehab center for torture victims, basically, in his home city of Casablanca. It looks like he, yeah, he sort of has a has a path back to a, a stable life. One of the things I, I remember very vividly when I started reporting this with, you know, this is not sort of my my zone. I kind of got pulled into it because of this name coincidence. But but my my kind of an assumption I had at the beginning was after being held for so long, uh, this man, if he didn't have, you know, anti-American sentiment and urges and, and motivations before all of this, he certainly would have them after that he would come out. And, and I kind of I was imagining it probably the same way as a lot of these other 700 guys that they would come out really pissed. And what I found, at least in Abdul Latif's case and in several of the other former Guantanamo detainees that I talked to him getting out, he he wasn't or he's not angry so much as from what I can gather from his lawyer and his family, he's tired and he's sad. He 
wants to have a family. He wants to kind of do the things he hasn't been able to do for the last 19 years. He has a name picked out for his firstborn child. And that's kind of a, I don't know, it's like a just the fact that this man for whom we had very flimsy evidence, we held him for this long and, and kind of now that's that's the only thing he wants to do. I don't know. To me, that kind of puts a lot of this, yeah, this sort of fighting over over who these guys are. Like he has a lot of health complications. He has permanent hearing damage from sensory overload uh, from uh, Guantanamo, according to his lawyer. Like he has health issues. He just wants to get back to his family. He wants to be left alone. Um, that's kind of the picture that I'm getting. And in this guy's case, and you know, it's clear there are 39 other cases where maybe that's not the case. But uh, in this guy's case, he might be able to just do that. So I want to ask you this precisely because you're not a lawyer. You've some, you're just <laughs> somebody who's engaged the case of this individual with a lot of complexity yeah. and a lot of sympathy. As I, it's been a while since I've listened to your series about him, but as I recall, you concluded that he was almost certainly more tied to bin Laden than his lawyers allow, that the evidence mm -hmm. of his engagement in any particular violent activity was uh, not all that strong, but that right. he was certainly associated in some sense with enemy forces. Is that a fair summary? Right. Yeah. And also, I think kind of pivotal, pivotally, he, like from what we found, there was no evidence that he had ever tried to harm civilians, that he had ever sort of targeted or con after American citizens. Like those two things to me were like spoke pretty loudly. So what do you think, you know, should have happened to Abdul Latif Nasser? He was captured by uh, either Pakistani or, or Northern Alliance forces and turned over to U.S. forces with a kind of tag on his toe that said Al-Qaeda. We're allowed to detain the enemy in wartime. 19 years of detention on that record seems pretty hard to understand. Like, what to you would have been justice or appropriate handling of Latif Nasser? I think the situation he's in right now is pretty reasonable. I mean, sending him to the fact that he's from a country that is an ally that has, you know, security apparatus that is able to keep tabs on this guy and, you know, yeah, pay attention to him to make sure that in the off chance that he does re-engage, which the numbers from the Obama administration and forward have been very low uh, in, in the case that he does re-engage like it that he can be stopped. But I think that that situation that he's in right now where it's like send him home, home to his family and monitor him. That seems like a, a pretty reasonable uh, solution. Keeping him for 19 years before that seems very extreme. I mean, it's it's obviously it's easy for me to say this now, uh, whether I, if I was the person in charge in, uh, right after 9-11, it might have been a harder call. But but right now, I think that scenario, that seems like a very reasonable scenario that could have been true, you know, even 15 years ago. We're going to leave it there. Latif Nasser, Steve Vladek, thank you both so much for joining us. 
Thank you. And Ben, if I can just say one thing, which is I, I just wanted to say thank you in the series that I reported. You you helped us out so much, me and my colleagues. And, and yeah, we're just really grateful for your help. It's a pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the intrepid Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Hey, folks, you know what to do. Share us on the socials. We need more Pinterest interest in Lawfare. I want you to make it happen. We want TikTok videos. We want shares on social media I've never even heard of. We want you to buy Lawfare Store merch at thelawfarestore.com. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by the one, the only, Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.